Hello and welcome to the Sydney Environment Institute's Critical Minerals podcast series, a series that will unpack what critical minerals are, why they are important and what the big issues are in mining them. My name is Susan Park and I'm a Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney. I'm leading the Critical Minerals Research Project at the Sydney Environment Institute that investigates the extraction of critical minerals for a just and sustainable energy transition. In this episode, we will hear from Dr. Jewelod Nem Singh, an Assistant Professor in International Development at the International Institute of Social Studies at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. We will discuss what role the European Union is playing in trying to reduce the environmental and social harm from critical minerals mining for renewable energy. Welcome, Jojo. Thank you very much for having me. So, Jojo, I've got a really basic question to start off with, which is, what is the European Union doing to regulate critical minerals? I think the EU has actually moved from a position where they kind of sort of talked about the significance of critical minerals, the importance of mining to a place or a position in which they've actually set in motion a series series of legislations that would regulate the critical mineral sector. And this is what they call the Critical Raw Materials Act, which is the CRM Act. So in this particular act, it basically wants to achieve three things. Number one, it's to build a resilient supply chain. What this means is they want to diversify the sources of raw materials in which the European Union gets these materials for processing and further production of manufacturing. And so the upstream side of the supply chain is now a key sector in which the EU is paying attention to. Part of the resilience objective is also to raise the environmental standards in the sector. So for example, setting environmental regulations, uh, making sure that all the materials will comply with EU um, rules and um, regulation. The second objective of the CRM Act is to strengthen domestic capacity or capability of the European Union. If you look at the data that's been shown, one of the main challenges for the EU is that historically and until the present, it has always depended its minerals from other countries, particularly third party countries. So it's not common to hear about mining as, a, as an economic sector in the European Union. So in response, the EU has legislated that it aims to increase the capability of European companies, European countries, regions, in order for them to be more independent or to, quote unquote, promote strategic autonomy of the European Union. In particular, what they really want to do is to at least have a 10% of extractive activities taking place within the European Union. At least 40% of processing of raw materials will eventually take place in the European Union, about 15% of EU consumption should come from recycling products. And then there is a new, there's a particular clause which talks about the need to be only dependent on specific countries and commodities of up to 65%. So just to give you an idea by comparison, rare earth elements or REEs, the EU is 98% dependent on China. When it comes to lithium, the EU is dependent on South America as well as Australia eventually if they're going to export in the European Union. So the idea is that at least 40%, 35-40% should be within the borders of the European Union. What this means in practice is that there is a clear emphasis on a revival of the mining industry beyond coal in the European Union. The final 
piece of the legislation talks about the, the need to build a, what they call a circular economy, which is essentially creating a recycling industry, um, building a, se a secondary supply chain in which all the materials that we've used would have labels and then eventually they would be uh, we would be able to track them and then recycle them into uh, materials that can be again used uh, for consumption. So the idea really that they have is that the Critical Raw Materials Act will eventually reduce the dependency of the European Union over the long period. Now, this is not something that will happen in 10, not even 20 years. But the idea is as the EU progressively moves towards regulating the critical mineral sector, that they'll also increase their strategic autonomy vis-a-vis -vis other countries, but also increase the regulation of the critical raw materials. And, and as you know, one of the key elements, or one of the main things that make the EU very unique, it's, it's enormous regulatory capacity and the compliance mechanisms that are in place. It has very high standards on environment and safety, etc. So the hope they have is that by raising certain standards in the mining industry that eventually other countries would follow suit as well. Thanks, Jojo. That's really, really interesting. I mean, as you say, it's got this enormous regulatory capacity, which could have a big impact on other producers and consumers. I'll, I'll get back to that in, in a minute. But, you know, it seems really, really comprehensive here. You've so talked about 10% of, of mining in the European Union, 40%, 15%, 65%. The 15% about the EU wanting to have or utilise recycling of critical minerals. That's really interesting. It seems really low, but do you know how much they're, they're recycling now? Yeah. So the reason why it's low is because there is no recycling industry to begin with. <laughs> so I actually think we need to think about these numbers, these percentages relative to what exists in the status quo. So this is actually a big debate also. For example, the mining industry, we've interviewed the European Euromines, which is the Association of European Mining and Metallurgy. They're actually also saying, but you know, 10% is low for extraction, 40% for processing. But actually, if you look at that from the point of view of no mining or very rigid mineral extractive activities, mining extractive activities, that's actually quite ambitious. Taking into account, we are looking at this, if we put it in a timetable, in a timescale, we're looking at a 2030, 2035 target here, because, you know, if we're chasing the clean energy transition, if we're chasing the rapid building up of green infrastructure, we would need to really increase, you know, the, um, the amount of extractive activities taking place within Europe, extraction would have to increase in many parts of the world in order for this energy transition to happen. So I actually think, yes, 15% is low, but actually if you're coming from a point of view where we're not talking about consumer recycling, we're really talking about industrial recycling. So, you know, the big old wind turbines that were put in there in the 60s and the 70s, we actually still don't have a mechanism in place how to recycle these big infrastructure. And so that 15%, the idea is you develop the technology in order for us to eventually move to a position where we are able to recycle these big infrastructures that we already have. But also I think what's important is anything that we produce from this point onwards, they need to be recyclable as well. And so I think that 15% may, be, may look really small, but actually in practice that requires an industrial level, ecosystem level change in regulations, in policies, but also in Incentives of, of companies because it will be costly for different companies participating in the supply chain. That's such a good point. And I think you're absolutely right that we do need to start looking at recycling at an industrial level for critical minerals, for renewable energy, and actually having a policy in place which 
can shift behaviour both in terms of incentive structures but also the costs of not complying. You did point to this idea of the European Union having this enormous regulatory capacity to affect change and that's one of the reasons why we're so pleased that you could speak with us today. How do you think this might affect producers like Australia in terms of the European Union having an act with these types of targets in place? So I want to start by pointing out two main things. One is the EU is leveraging its single market as kind of a a way to attract countries to build trade relationships around critical raw materials. So the EU, if we look back historically, the EU is not used to being very dependent on other countries. Because if we think of supply chains, we often assume that anything you want, you can buy in the global market. You know, you may pay a higher price, but it will be available. We're in a geopolitical context in which suddenly markets don't function the way we thought they functioned in the past. And so because of that, um, the EU is trying to use its single market as a way to increase access for mineral producing countries. So one of the most important strategy is the trade strategy here. The EU trade strategy is really focused on strategic mineral producers. So for example, for rare earth elements, to reduce dependency from China, they would like Australia to play a much bigger role in the trade. And so that might mean, you know, one of the FTAs would have very specific clauses around how trade would look like on REE, rare earth elements. Um, Mostly on the, I think the upstream, we're not really talking about the midstream yet or the processing of rare earth elements. For nickel, Australia also plays a a very big role. So Australia and Indonesia are the main players that in which the EU has been establishing its FTAs, thinking really about how to build the infrastructure for green technology. For lithium, the main focus is less on on Australia, more on South America, most likely in in Argentina. And then, of course, a platinum group, which you need for different types of clean energy technologies, that is directly with South Africa. So in short, the main effect of EU's rising demand for critical minerals is that it increases opportunities for trade. It increases opportunities for more mineral mining activities in mineral producing countries. So that's one, I think. On on the one side, that's a positive because it means for countries that are dependent on minerals, there's a market in which prices are also very high. So it's a very lucrative business at this point in time. The second point, though, that that I want to raise, which is a, a bit more, you know, just a point of caution, is that the main problem with mineral producing countries is that it has historically been an impediment for long term structural transformation for economic development of countries. So, you know, we know about the resource curse effect. We know about how dependency on mining create enclave societies and enclave economies. And so there are dangers whereby we are basically outsourcing and externalizing the environmental and social costs of mineral activities. And the EU is very much aware of this problem. And so if you look at all their documents, they often talk about in the language of partnerships and coalition building and alliances to emphasize the fact that, you know, mining historically has been present, I think. They still think of mining as something that that you do in the past, that it's dirty, it's environmentally damaging. And so there are costs and trade-offs that need to come with that. And if we take then that point of view, the main challenge for mineral producing countries is that they may be facing a a trade-off in terms of how they're going to pursue long-term industrialization. Because ultimately, if we go back to the CRM Act, if they say they want 40% of processing, then you have a question, then how much processing can take place in the developing world where these minerals are going to be produced? 
And as we all know, one of the main policy objective of mineral producing countries is to increase the value addition and increase the upgrading, emphasize industrial upgrading in their own economies. And so then you have to ask, well, how many processing plants can we have for nickel, for example, right? So you may have one in Australia, you may have one in Indonesia, but can we also have one in the European Union? And I think there's a practical implication there. Who gets the technology for greener extractive activities? There's a big project in Sweden at the moment, which they call a green steel project. And so one of the ideas is you're decarbonizing the basic infrastructure and you're decarbonizing the you know, carbon intensive mineral activities. If that's the case, would it not make sense then that these technologies that are going to be produced in Sweden would be used in Sweden because also the extractive industries in Sweden are very much contested at this point. There's a lot of protests. There's a lot of questions in terms of whether mining is even viable in some parts of the European Union. And so I think the implication is if a carbon intensive mineral activity in Indonesia, would they be even competitive vis-a-vis the green projects that are that are being pushed out, pushed up in, in the agenda in the EU? And so I think the main effect of this is we may see an overall increase or improvement in environmental standards in terms of carbon intensity, in terms of cleaning and greening, you know, steel projects. But whether that's going to transfer to developing countries, I think it, it's a very big question. And I think one of the main issues also is that I don't know whether developing countries might want that. A good example, again, is to go back to Indonesia, where there are certain legislations that are put in place at the moment in which they themselves are giving more trade or, you know, more um, concessions with China, with Korea, with uh, different countries because they need the investments to come in. And so when you're in a trade negotiation and you want a foreign investment to come in, you may actually be forgoing higher environmental standards in order for you to be able to attract and compete in the mining industry. And and I think going back to that example of Indonesia, Thailand actually has been more successful in terms of its EV car manufacturing strategy. So Indonesia wants eventually an EV car supply chain, an ecosystem where electric vehicle cars can be produced in Indonesia. But you're also competing with other Southeast Asian countries. You may be competing with countries like Japan and Korea who have EV car industries themselves. So I think there's a question of how technology transfer will really be beneficial for mineral producing countries. And also, I think there's a fundamental conflict there, because if we want processing in the developed world and developing countries, then I think we're basically just making the assumption that we have to increase extractive activities in order to big, you know, to to widen the pie that we are going to share in order for the energy transition to be more redistributive. And then that has its own set of costs that we need to deal with in the medium and the long term. Absolutely. You've painted quite a complex picture in terms of the European Union strategy, providing both a market for critical minerals, also a potential market for higher value added or processed critical minerals for renewable energy, but also a competitor as well. So it's quite a sophisticated strategy that the European Union is identifying in its Critical Raw Minerals Act. Um, which has um, quite significant impacts on producers like Australia, but also developing countries and whether or not that locks them further into a a sort of resource curse where they're only extracting raw materials that don't really benefit their own development. So this is really interesting, but I, I wondered whether or not you could answer the question as to whether or not you think this Critical Raw Minerals Act 
by the European Union really gets at some of the main problems with mining critical minerals for renewable energy? Does it really get to those environmental and social problems that you know, we're becoming more familiar with about impacts on local ecosystems, on Indigenous communities, on the various types of impacts that are around the mine site. Um, I mean, I talked a lot about the Critical Raw Materials Act because that's the kind of central piece of legislation. One of the main unique features, I think, of the EU approach here is that it actually comes together with three other pieces of big legislation. So it's not like in the US where there's just the, the IRA, which is their main piece of legislation. There's also things that come with it. So in the case of the EU, there's the Green Deal, there's the Net Zero Act, and there's the CHIPS Act, which is specific to semiconductors. I'm not going to go in detail with, with them, but I think the main point here is if you're dealing with a very complex sector like mining, you really need to think about the life cycle of the mining industry or the mineral itself, and then figure out how to regulate the different aspects of it. One key concern, I think, of the EU has always been that the only way they could be competitive vis-a-vis -vis China and other countries is if they give a better offer for developing countries. And that means increasing the environmental standards in the mining stream so that, you know, the, the environmental footprint would be lesser for the developing countries. But I think that's true to the extent that the legislation is in place, if, if that makes sense. I think whether it will happen and whether countries will follow the EU, that's something we need to see over the next couple of years. I think the main issue is we're not really talking about mining simply as an economic or even an environmental issue anymore. Mining is also intricately connected to geopolitical tensions that, that we're currently experiencing now. And so one question I always ask with my interviewees, for example, is what happens if then the EU suddenly is faced with, you know, you know you're facing the Minister of Mines in Zambia, and then they have a choice between China, which will give you lower costs, you know, and give you all these benefits, because also China has a footprint in Africa, and, and they've built infrastructure there. So, you know, there's clear outcome that the Chinese already had, you know, there's a legacy there. And then you have the EU coming in and say, basically, look, we're going to offer you better environmental standards in mining. We're going to try and see whether these green steel project will work and some of these technology can be transferred there. I think we really don't know how the miner, the mining minister would respond to that. Because on the one hand, they may want less environmental standards, but if it's not commensurate to the benefits and, and you know, and, and, and the concerns of the Zambians themselves, the communities, the national government, then maybe the EU offering isn't good enough in that sense. So I think part of the problem is that these geopolitical tensions might push the EU as well at the same time to rethink their strategy and also to succumb to, to the pressure of getting the mineral as opposed to standing by and saying that, you know, we want better environmental standards and, and regulations. I do know that the commission has been emphasizing that their competitive advantage is that they can raise the environmental standards. So this is something that they've kept repeating publicly, also in, in very different avenues, they've mentioned that this is how they will compete with China in particular. I think if they can do it, then some of the problems that we are facing when it comes to critical raw materials and mining generally could be alleviated. The other point, though, that I want to raise is there are things that are kind of not in the purview of these legislations. So for example, with 
rare earth elements, REEs, of course, they're controlled by China, but there's a bigger problem here. It's not even that the Chinese can fully control the industry. There's a big illegal mining taking place in the rare earth industry sectors, most of which are in Myanmar because heavy rare earth elements are being extracted in Myanmar and then they get processed in China. So this is a China problem. It's a, it's a problem of human rights as well, perhaps, environmental standards, definitely, but it's also a problem for all of us because if the REE sector faces a problem that even the Chinese cannot figure out and solve, then I think any kind of legislation that we put in place will not have any effect because the dynamics of how the industry operates is simply not within the reach of these legislations. And so I think one of the main justifications, for example, by the Chinese government in the REE sector for centralization is they want to curb on illegal mining. And so the only way you can do that is if you start centralizing economic production in this sector. The final point I want to make is on social licensing. This is not something that the European Union, you know, has, has discovered. We know, we've studied Latin America, social licensing is one of the most effective way to bring in the stakeholders in conversation with mineral governance. The problem is we actually don't have enough empirical evidence to show that it has worked. And so when we think of critical minerals, we think of this as something new. I'd like us to remember back in early 2000, when China was expanding its economy and it's exponentially growing, there was a huge demand from China and also India for infrastructure. And that is what catapulted the mining boom in Latin America and in Africa. And so one of the main differences in terms of governance models is that in Latin America, they wanted a more a model in which communities and stakeholders would be part of the process. And social licensing and the, the compliance to ILO 169 in particular was the most important piece of international legislation that could be used to leverage that uh, towards, to, you know, to change the behavior of multinational companies. I think the main issue is we have seen it work in some places, but then in general, it hasn't. So in the case, for example, of I'm thinking of Chile, in Chile, the ILO 169 has been really effective in terms of pushing better environmental standards. In Peru, it depends on which mining project you're looking at. And then, of course, in other places, there's really, you know, empirical research that still needs to be done. So if we want communities to be part of that conversation, we need to improve our social licensing system. The EU doesn't really quite capture that because I think part of it is because they were not aware of the problem of, you know, the mining industry because they've really assumed that these metals you can just get them from the global market. And then now that we cannot get them, and now there's pressure for the EU to start mining activities themselves. You know, there are mining projects now in Spain, in Germany, in Italy, in Portugal, there's a big lithium project. Now they're facing with this problem because suddenly mining isn't just an environmental question. It also becomes a strategic question, which for many countries like Australia, it has always been. It wasn't a question of, you know, how to use minerals for different political and geoeconomic interests. But for the EU, it has become a reality. And I think they are still figuring out how to maneuver and navigate these very complex issues because at the end of the day, they want the minerals, but they also want higher environmental standards. But we also want the clean energy transition to succeed in the next two decades. So, so I think it's like multiple phases and facets of a single problem that needs to be dealt with simultaneously with multiple policy instruments at the same time.
That was incredibly insightful. Thank you, Jojo. I mean, you really do highlight the sheer number of issues and competing interests that even the European Union as a, as a single entity is facing in terms of, as you say, wanting access to the minerals, but also wanting a higher standard of, of mining. And that really flows through not just to environmental issues, but also human rights and labour standards as well. And that's incredibly important. But it is absolutely a dynamic space, also indicated by the difference of the minerals themselves, right? They all have different markets and they all have different needs in terms of what they are being used for. But, you know, this was just the really cutting the surface of what's happening now in the European Union. And thank you so much for being able to provide even just a glimpse into the complexities of what the European Union is currently doing in this space. So thank you for coming. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to speak to you. So this brings us to the end of the Critical Minerals podcast series. Thank you for joining us as we delved into the minerals that underpin our chances of a decarbonised future and explored the complex web of social, environmental and geopolitical consequences that the extraction of these minerals creates. As we continue this project, make sure to subscribe to the Sydney Environment Institute's newsletter to stay up to date as we share new research findings from the project. This series is produced by the Sydney Environment Institute, a world-leading environmental research institute at the University of Sydney. The series is part of the Critical Minerals Research Project funded by the Sydney Environment Institute, the Australian Research Council and the Canadian Humanities and Social Sciences Research Council to investigate the extraction of critical minerals for a just and sustainable energy transition. Stay informed about critical environmental research by subscribing to the SCI podcast series on your favourite podcast app and learn how to tackle the greatest challenges of our time. 